Priscilla and I were out of town last weekend, so we were not here for the final message uh, that Brad brought on the book of Daniel, Uh, and I'll have a chance to go online and to hear that. Uh, I am bringing the message from the Word this morning, and then Pastor Brad will be announcing at the end of the service here where he's taking us with his messages and the Sundays here to come. An observation that probably many of us have made is that when we begin to think about matters of life and death, that we find ourselves uh, having a a curiosity and a keen interest, uh, especially amongst famous people. What are their final hours like? Uh, what's, uh, what is their frame of mind? What, what is that which is most uh, on their minds? Uh, what are their last words? In fact, you can go online and find many people who have made collections of last words of famous people. And of course, when we think of people being famous, uh, I think our curiosity is piqued because after living a life that has brought some kind of notoriety or achievement, what are, what are the final words they'll be saying before they check out of this life. Uh, The fact of the matter is, sometimes uh, the last words are not all that stirring. In fact, sometimes they're downright mundane. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, was uh, dying at the age of 84, and his daughter told him to change position in bed so he could breathe more easily. And what became his last words were, a dying man can do nothing easy. End of story. Uh, famous 20th century singer Frank Sinatra died after uttering the words, I'm losing it. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, according to his sister who was with him when he died, he said three times, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. On a more even serious note, I was startled after a life of such notoriety, in fact, some would say one of the most famous, important, significant people of the entire 20th century, Sir Winston Churchill. His last words were, I'm bored with it all. With some measure of modesty, Leonardo da Vinci, his last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Well, it goes without saying that where I would like us to focus this morning for today's message, that it goes without saying there is nothing mundane about Jesus' last words, words that were uttered even while He was being executed by crucifixion. Jesus' last words on the cross reveal some of His distinguishing characteristics that prominently stand out as he utters them hanging on the cross. And we have four Gospels, as I think most of you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which give us accounts through a different lens of each writer of the events in Jesus' life, his teaching, his miracles, and indeed his, his death. And rather than having you go back and forth and looking at each of the seven passages that record his last, what are called last seven sayings or last seven words of Jesus, 
Uh, I've put that chart there on the back of your bulletin so you can easily uh, look at it. Uh, these statements are listed in the order that students of the Bible believe that they occurred, so that the first statement was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, followed by the second, third, and on down to all seven. Uh, a couple of things to notice, and then we'll come back to this chart in just a bit. One, two, and three, the first three statements that are recorded, he uttered between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. noon. Then from 12 to 3, as the gospel records tell us, there was darkness over the land, and we do not find any recorded statements of Jesus during that three hours of darkness. But then after 3 p.m., the final four statements are uttered by Jesus. And you will also notice, looking at the chart, that except for Matthew and Mark, both recording his fourth statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The others are unique to Luke and John. So the things that John reports are different than what Luke reports and vice versa. And of course, this... Uh, brings to mind uh, the fact that harmonizing the Gospels, uh, while at times challenging, is also fascinating uh, to try and line up as each one records what they saw and heard. And sometimes we have a hard time making all the pieces fit, but just keep in mind that when we have differences between them, and this is just a good principle to keep in mind when you're reading the Gospels just generally, is that we are looking at four different accounts that are equally correct, but they're each seen from a different perspective. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in my study, you know, the church offices are on 43rd Street, and my desk is right in front of the window that looks out at 43rd Street. And I was sitting there, and I was reading, and all of a sudden, I heard that sound that we all know what it is as soon as we hear it. There's the screeching tire, and then this collision of metal, and then everything is deathly quiet, except for a blaring horn. And so I jumped up, and I ran out to the front of the office, and a vehicle had hit another vehicle and totally had spun it around. And there was already one witness on the scene. I came out. I think I was probably the second person. And then very quickly, the fire truck came and the ambulance came. But as witnesses gathered around, I'm sure some would say they saw a dark SUV had hit a beige car. And women were driving both cars. And one of the car's horn was just blaring nonstop right after the collision. What I saw was a Toyota 4Runner hit a little Honda, and it was not just two ladies driving. As soon as I saw one lady in the dark SUV get out and run around to the other side, I thought, she has a child in the car. I mean, a mother jumps out that fast and runs around, and sure enough, she took out uh, a young child who seemed to be unhurt. In fact, no one was seriously hurt in the accident. But someone else may have witnessed the fact that one of the ladies, her car was not movable, and so she unloaded the trunk out in the grass and just sat there uh, very uh, dejected on the grass. In fact, I went over to her to make sure someone was coming to help her. Yet another witness could volunteer 
that another car came up with a man picking up the lady and child, likely her husband. And then I noticed the firemen were walking around. They were sweeping up glass because one wheel with the tire on it was totally missing off the back of the tan car that got hit. And I looked out, and just 10 yards from the door to our office, this wheel had been sheared off of the axle, and it went flying and landed in the parking lot where the church office is. And so I saw a fireman walking around and looking at the car, and I said, do you see this tire over here? And he goes, I wondered where that went. And so they went and retreated. But my point is that several witnesses, including myself, could testify to what each of us saw, but the details would not be exactly the same, although they're all accurate. And that's the way we should approach the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. Now, just to move through these sayings, obviously each one would merit a sermon, but that is not our focus today. Uh, My focus is to uh, share and teach some things that are going to get us to the Lord's table here in uh, just a little bit. But with Jesus hanging on the cross, the first words that are recorded, we might think, well, would it be a cry for pity? Uh, Would it be a curse on the executioners? Well, the answer is no to both of those, as we can read it there. His first words recorded were a prayer. It was a prayer to His heavenly Father. Now, keep in mind, right after Jesus was baptized, he prayed. So his earthly ministry was inaugurated in prayer. And here, as he's concluding his earthly ministry, it is characterized by prayer to his heavenly Father. And what he prays to the heavenly Father, by anyone's estimation, is nothing short of astonishing He prays that God would forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He's referring to those who have participated in his conviction and his execution. Jesus, in that astonishing utterance, is simply being consistent and following through with what he had taught during his three years of ministry. Remember these words by Jesus? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Easier said than done, isn't it? I wonder how some of the Ukrainian Christians are managing with that example to follow. Now, Jesus' prayer here, this first word on the cross as it's called, has been much debated. And the debate has been fueled by two things. One, the absence of this statement in some of the oldest New Testament manuscripts we have. A lot of old ones do have it, and there are some significant old manuscripts that do not have it. Now, I don't want to wade into the murky waters of dragging you through all the names of these ancient transcripts, uh, excuse me, manuscripts and the like, but I mention that because the second reason why its authenticity is debated is that some, especially early on in the church, concluded 
that the people who killed Jesus were reprobates, and God does not bless reprobates. And so they deserve whatever wrath and punishment that is coming their way, and that Jesus would not have asked for them to be forgiven for their wicked, evil deeds. But nonetheless, I think there's good reason to believe that's exactly what Jesus prayed, especially in light of the verse I just reminded you of from the Sermon on the Mount. But when he prays to the Father, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do, basically he's asking that God will blot out their transgressions and in his sovereign grace cause them to repent truly so that they can be and will be pardoned fully. Now, it may very well be that God did answer this prayer just as Jesus prayed it because, as you know, Jesus died somewhere in the early A.D. 30s. He was 33 years old when he was executed. And Jesus had said that part of the, the consequences to the rejection wholesale by the Jewish people and the leaders in particular he told them that the time would come when the temple would be torn down. And that doesn't happen until almost four decades later. So many students of Scripture see that when he prayed that they would be forgiven, that God allowed a space of almost four decades for the gospel to be proclaimed and for many of those same Jews who had opposed him initially to actually come to faith in Christ. I would remind you... Uh, when Peter preached his first sermon, there in the confines of the Temple Mound, 3,000 people, mainly Jewish people, came to Christ. When he gave his uh, second sermon, Acts records that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so there were many Jews who did come to faith during that period between Jesus' ascension back to the Father and the establishing of the church and Jerusalem being destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. Now, when Jesus says, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, it's not that their ignorance did, uh, did not uh, remove their, their guilt. They were not guiltless due to their ignorance, but they probably didn't truly understand the magnitude and the ramifications of what their wicked, evil deeds were accomplishing. And I think that is what Peter had in mind when he echoes this very thing. When Peter is addressing uh, a crowd in Acts chapter 3, he speaks these words to these folks. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. So I wonder if Peter was very influenced by acknowledging there was a certain ignorance, not an ignorance that removes culpability, but an ignorance that shows their miscalculation and their true lack of understanding of what they have done. Then, of course, Stephen, who was martyred in Acts chapter 7, 
just before he dies, he speaks very similar words. Falling on his knees, we read in Acts 7, verse 60, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he died. And so I think Stephen is following the example of his Lord Jesus when he prays something similar. But it takes an unusually unique person to at death at the hands of someone who is wicked to actually pray something to their well-being. We'd have to say that stepping aside from Jesus as the God-man, that that is the most unnatural thing for any human being uh, to do. Second word, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Obviously, we read that he was hung between two thieves, one on either side. And the first statement that's recorded, Christ offers a prayer for those who are crucifying him. Here in this second statement, he's offering a promise for one who's being crucified alongside of him. Christ, the Lord Jesus is in the midst of their unwelcome camaraderie the shared agony, in the midst of that, offers hope and assurance of eternal life to the thief on the one side who rebuked the other thief for mocking Jesus. If you're really the Christ, why don't you save us? And then you'll recall, I'm not going to take the time to go read it, but you'll recall the other thief said, you know, uh, this man is innocent, speaking of Jesus, and he defended Jesus. He went on to say, we deserve to be here. We're guilty. And so what does Jesus do in response to that thief? He gives him a gift. What a gracious gift. The man who says, I am guilty, and Jesus' promise of being in paradise with him means he is acquitted. The thief who says, I deserve this, Jesus gives him mercy. The thief who says, I'm dying as a convicted criminal, will be pardoned. There's a lot into that statement. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Time presses us to move on. Number three, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Uh, we are aware that in ancient cultures, it was hard for a woman to survive on her own. At the time of Jesus' crucifixion, his mother Mary is probably in her late 40s or maybe early 50s. Now, Jesus had half-brothers, and uh, I'm surmising here, and um, Brad, maybe you can share another time if you've got another view, but, you know, I've wondered, well, why not the other half-brothers? James and some of the others, why are they not stepping up to take care? Why is he turning to John, who's not even in the immediate family? And it occurs to me that, you know, his, his half-brothers were slow to come around, and maybe even at the crucifixion, they still weren't totally on board with who he was. And I envision that... Uh, looking to John as the youngest uh, disciple, that Jesus saw that he would provide a more spiritually healthy and secure home for Mary. 
So what a touching scene that in the midst of his own agonizing death, he looks down and speaks to Mary and to John, showing his concern for her and her looking up into the mutilated face of her son. And what a moment uh, of, of absolute grief and drama. The fourth saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me that Matthew and Mark both record? There's something about this statement that I really want you to take note of. In the four Gospels, Jesus spoke 21 recorded prayers. In the four Gospels, Jesus spoke 21 recorded prayers. In all of them, he addresses God as Father, except this statement that Matthew and Mark record. And the statement is that he refers to him not as Father, but my God, my God. Uh, it would seem that the normal Father that reflected the intimacy of the Father with the Son, at least in this moment, is replaced with the name God, who is acting as a judge and who is about to unleash punishment on Jesus for the sins of human beings. Perhaps that's why in that moment he cried out, my God, my God. He was enduring the punishment that every one of us deserved. Fifth statement, I am thirsty. Uh, there was a certain kind of mixture that some of the lower classes and soldiers used. It was kind of a a vinegar wine, and uh, the Gospel uh, of John records that they dipped a sponge in it and lifted it up to him on a branch of hyssop, a particular kind of plant. It's not a coincidence. We mentioned Passover at the beginning of the service when they spread the blood over the doorpost in the first Passover in Egypt. They spread it with a branch of hyssop, and this seems to be very much going hand. It's no coincidence that Jesus is killed during the Passover, that that is by God's design and God's finger is all over the history of everything about Jesus' life. The sixth statement, it is finished. The word in the Greek New Testament for finished can be defined as to reach the end of something, to consummate, to be brought to a goal, to execute fully. When Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished, he was stating that he had accomplished that for which God had sent him. Remember what Jesus said in an earlier chapter of John, in John chapter 4, when Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And that's why when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and in his human nature was expressing the, the fact that he would rather have this cup pass from him, but he concluded that his role was to do that which God had willed that he would do. And so when it says that, when Jesus says it is finished, that means that he has fulfilled the law, that he has fulfilled all the messianic prophecies, and most importantly, that he has accomplished atonement for his people. The seventh statement, 
Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. So he returns to addressing God as Father, that intimate title. You know, by the way, I may have mentioned this in another sermon, but it is, it is noteworthy that scholars who have researched Judaism in particular, especially the centuries leading up to the arrival of Jesus, they cannot find a single instance of any Jew ever addressing God as Father, except for Jesus. And it's interesting that when he teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches them from the get-go, our Father who art in heaven. And so Jesus brought a whole new dimension of understanding to the intimate relationship between God and his children, that he is a heavenly Father. And when he stated, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, Remember, even though there were those who plotted against him, who sent him through kangaroo courts, and who unjustly condemned him and had him hung on the cross, Jesus laid down his life willingly. This is not something they took from him. This is something he willingly gave. And in John 10, we read these words, for this reason, Jesus is speaking, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And so in that moment, Jesus bowed his bleeding, noble head and died. The moment Jesus died on the cross, I personally envision a cosmic shockwave that rippled throughout the entire universe as the sacrificial lamb of God paid for your sin and for mine. That rupture that occurred because of the first Adam back in the garden was overturned by Jesus, the second Adam who came to restore us into a right relationship with God. Now, having observed those things briefly about each of the seven statements, there are two other takeaways I really want to put before you before we go to the Lord's table. And these two takeaways um, are these. First, Christ's Complete familiarity and total reliance on the Word of God. Christ's complete familiarity and total reliance on the Word of God, that is, the Scripture. We know well the account that when Jesus was in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, with each of the temptations that Satan set before him, Jesus responded, quoting from a verse in the book of Deuteronomy, three different times, and his defense against that temptation was to quote the Word of God. And the four days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, the way Matthew records this, Jesus is confronted by the leaders time and again 
For example, the chief priests uh, react to him cleansing the tent temple and the children uh, praising him, and it caused the chief priest to be indignant. So he quotes from Psalm 8 too. You've never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? When the chief priests and elders challenge his authority, he replies with parables of the two sons and of the landowner. And there he responds, quoting from Psalm 118, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. And with the other two, each time he was confronted, he responded by quoting, as it turns out in Matthew's account from the Psalms, each and every time. Now let me direct your attention back to the back of your bulletin for just a moment. We won't look them up, but the clearest psalm that King David writes about the suffering Messiah is Psalm 22. And we have to recognize that Psalm 22 must have been flowing through his veins while he was hanging on the cross. Because each of the statements he makes, we can find references that are a correlation to that in Psalm 22. Even the initial statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the very first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day. Yet you are holy. And we won't take the time this morning, but at least four of these statements are almost direct quotes, if not allusions, to the Messianic Psalm 22. Jesus saw each aspect of his suffering as fulfilling King David's prophecies of a thousand years earlier. And as Jesus buckled under the weight of the world's sin, he drew strength from the Scripture he learned from boyhood. It was the Scripture that supplied Jesus with the perspective and the resolve to endure this torturous death. Jesus, in his divine nature, authored the Bible Jesus, in his human nature, craved the Bible. What did he say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And by the way, do we not learn from his example that he was so saturated with the Word of God, and should we not be as well? And maybe even just asking that question, maybe this is the little nudge you need to get back into spending more time in Scripture and studying it, devouring it. Because just as it gave him strength and resolve and maintained his intimate relationship with God, so it would do the same for us. And the second takeaway, and I know this is obvious, but, but I want to state it anyway. Christ's selfless love and concern for other people is represented in these statements. We dare not file away this little chart as a tidy summation of Jesus' last words, and we dare not overlook the heart that undergirds this chart and these statements. Because in the midst of his excruciating pain, 
his intermittent asphyxiation in the midst of joint rending cramps and tendons and muscles torn and stretched to unbearable extreme, in the midst of his straining for breath, where do his blood-soaked eyes gaze? Well, first, it's to the executioners praying for them. Secondly, it's the thief to his side. And then finally, to his mother. That is extraordinary. Don't let the familiarity of, of Christ's last words blunt the impact of what we're seeing about Jesus in this record. Again, has Jesus not left us an example, indeed a command? At the Lord's Supper, He said this to the twelve, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And that's obvious from what we're reading even in the seven last words. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. There's a song that we sing, and part of the lyrics read, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And yes, it is a command, but our disposition should not be okay, I guess I have to. Jesus has told me to love. Rather, it should be because of Jesus' love for me, I get to love others. I want to love others. I've lost track of how many years ago uh, this occurred, but there was a man who for a number of years was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina, Dr. McQuilkin. We had him come speak to a missions conference for us one time years ago. Uh, the whole seminary Bible college community and much of the world actually were startled when he wrote a letter of resignation stepping aside to be president. Now those close to the campus knew why he was doing this because even though he was still in full vigor and full health, his wife was not. And she was uh, showing signs of Alzheimer's and it was getting worse and by the time he resigned, she still recognized him but unfortunately, if he was not in her presence, she panicked and was always in a state of fear. And so he explained that she had uh, taken care of him for so many years that it was now his turn to serve her. And he said specifically in the letter, it's not that I have to do this, I get to do this. And I think that that statement reflects what a Christ-like attitude is like when Jesus calls us to love one another even as He has loved us. So His unswerving reliance on Scripture, His selfless concern and compassion for other people, those are the two main things I want us to ponder as we share the bread and the cup this morning. Would you please pray with me? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we find ourselves, I trust, Stirred once again, even perhaps feeling heavy of heart to realize the excruciating way that Jesus died for us. It should have been us, but by your grace and your mercy, he took it upon himself. And Lord, I thank you that in Jesus' absolute wisdom, he commissioned the church to perpetually observe this Lord's Supper to remember Him and what our salvation has cost 
him and also the hope we have looking to the future that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord Jesus till he returns. So, Father, I pray that for those of us who have shared in this meal for years and years and even decades, Lord, refresh our hearts and our minds, uh, renew us in our gratitude and in our awe of a God who would take on human flesh and endure the cross. And thank you for the victory that comes in his resurrection three days later. And we thank you for these things in the matchless name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen.